This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Check these bad boys out. Oh, wow. We're ready to go. We are taking it to the... Is I'm, this, is this... I'm, I'm putting these on today for your birthday, Santi. I see. Well, th- this is this is like Neo in the Matrix. Like th- th- this is something else, or Morpheus. No, no. You look you look just like Morpheus, which is is very uh, fitting, I guess. Exactly. That's what I was going for. How was uh, how was the birthday? Let's just let's just play with this idea that my birthday is today because crypto is up only, and so I like the idea that on my birthday, crypto gods deserve to honor us with an up only day. <clears throat> Correlation, causation. Who who knows, right? Uh, Santi, we got a big app. I'm, uh, I'm pumped. I'm, so we're talking about uh, Microsoft first, then we'll get into tokenomics. Third week in a row, we're talking about tokenomics. I have some thoughts that go against what actually I said last week, so I want to get your take on some of this. Um, I am feeling more and more convinced that DeFi is primed for a massive year this year. I want to get your take on some things. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about uh, L1 stuff per usual. Is Solana the new Los Angeles? Is Avalanche, the new Chicago, Hasib Qureshi over at Dragonfly. I think so. We're going to talk about that. We've got a good up ahead. Uh, two things in advance. One, I apologize. I don't know. I don't think I've got the Roni, but my voice feels like uh, I've been smoking a pack of cigs every day for 50 years. So might uh, might give out on us. And then the second thing is a uh, big permissionless shout out. Been sitting on this one for a while. Uh, today, we announced that Coinbase is going to be the presenting partner of permissionless. Really excited about this one. Coinbase has onboarded millions of people into this industry. And um, yeah, I'm really happy that they're supporting the event. Uh, we've got like almost 3,000 people signed up already. And yeah, it's going to be a great one. So if you're not attending, Big time. you probably tickets are sold out at this point of this batch. But you can wait. Put something on your calendar for January 31st or February 1st, and you can get the next drop. Without further ado, Let's jump in. All right, Santi. Microsoft bets mm-hmm. big on the metaverse. $68.7 billion deal for Activision Blizzard. Uh, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella in a call earlier said that the acquisition will help build the future of the metaverse for Microsoft. Ooh, I've got some interesting takes, I think, but I want to hear your stuff first before jumping into it. What do you make of this? <clears throat> Look, I mean, I think this is a good time to sort of pause and you know the last couple of weeks i've been just with non-crypto people um which has been a good refresher because they are obviously interested in what is the metaverse right and, and i think this it's a term that gets being is being used a lot but i don't think we can actually like i think it's worthwhile just understanding what the metaverse is and i'll tell you what it is for me and i'll tie it back to what microsoft is probably doing and, and facebook the metaverse i think is this idea that <clears throat> our digital experiences are going to be equally or better than real life experiences and that doesn't necessarily mean that it encompasses virtual reality, augmented reality. Certainly, like those two, those two different things enhance your experience in a digital context, right? Anyone that has used virtual reality, it is it has gone super immersive, not perfect, um, but very immersive, right? Oculus and some of these games, like you you feel, you know, it's being used to treat therapy and depression because it it simulates your brain kind of doesn't really make this distinction, <clears throat> and. You know, for a while, a lot of people were critical of, hey, your, your friends in uh, on Facebook and social media, you know, are, are really not real friends. And, you know, I, I push back on that because I think, like, as you and I know, these online communities are very immersive. And so, like, the metaverse has kind of existed for a long time. It's sort of this idea that when you layer – so the question is, like, what's different now, right? And with crypto, the difference is that you actually own 
pieces of this digital environment, if you will, whether it's land, whether it's NFTs, whether it's, you know, just tokens that represent some sort of access and part of a community. And so, like, I think to me, it's just always important to say, look, the metaverse is not new, but certain things have changed. Most importantly, front and center of that is this idea that you can have property and digital scarcity in the digital context. Now, that also happens to intersect with this idea that there is a lot of powerful technology that enhances your digital um, experiences. Obviously, Activision, one of the best studios for games, right? And, you know, Microsoft also, <clears throat> you know, with Minecraft, I think they own Minecraft, right? And so I think they're seeing probably that. Um, what is most interesting, though, is, and I was thinking about this when Facebook obviously did the whole rebranding for Meta. And, you know, I understand people are very critical. I can't even remember the last time I logged into Facebook, sometimes Instagram. But nonetheless, um, Facebook has, you know, criticism aside, Facebook has been really good at one thing, which is predicting megatrends. They bought Instagram for $1 billion. Everyone was very critical. They didn't cap, like, possibly understand why you'd buy something for a $1 billion. Lo and behold, Instagram today is probably their number one source, or at least highest growing segment for marketing, right? Um, not the core platform. They bought WhatsApp, and of course, that's been a huge onboard. I mean, most people across the world use WhatsApp. And Oculus. Oculus has obviously been slower, but it's more difficult. And now I think... To me, Microsoft's always been kind of a laggard, although Satya has been probably a really good um, CEO in my estimation. And so it's, it's good to see this. Obviously, it validates this. I think last year, the key word was NFTs. This year is the metaverse, right? I think you constantly I have Bloomberg in the background. This is constantly comes up uh, all the time. So I'll pause there. But hopefully that kind of I want to just give a, a broad understanding of what I think of the metaverse. I don't know if you would agree with that, Jason. I, I actually wrote it in the notes. I'm really glad that you said it, and I think it needs to be reset. It is very clear to me that the metaverse is not one place, right? It is, it is many places. The metaverse is just an overarching term for a digital first world. The more interoperable, there'll, there'll be dozens, hundreds, thousands of metaverses. The power of each metaverse comes from one thing, which is how interoperable it becomes. Uh, and I think that's why people were so excited about crypto, and like a crypto first metaverse is because when you build a lot of different things like games and tools and all that kind of stuff on a database that looks, that is the same, all of these different things become interoperable. That is why Microsoft's metaverse is going to be fucking awesome. And I'm just going to put it out there. And, you know, I, I want to be, I'm still obviously so excited about a crypto first metaverse, but I also think a Microsoft metaverse would be pretty damn cool, right? They now own Call of Duty, Diablo, World of Warcraft, Candy Crush, Starcraft. Hell, they own the tools, right? They own all of the Microsoft Outlook suite, Microsoft Teams. They own GitHub, right? In uh, March of 2021, they closed a $7.5 billion acquisition, making them the owner of Fallout and Doom and Quake. Uh, like seven or eight years ago, they bought Minecraft Maker, uh, for two and a half billion, right? Combining all these deals, Microsoft now owns more than, I think it's like over 100, 150 tier one games, right? And so I think when you look at the metaverse, the, the gaming ecosystem is the obvious entry point into the metaverse. Microsoft already dominates cloud. They dominate office. They dominate, dominate the operating system market. Uh, and I think with this, they are going to dominate one part of the metaverse, now, the counter to a lot of this is that they don't have the physical entryway, right? Meta owns uh, the console sales, uh, like they own, they own Oculus. Well, Microsoft is also coming out with uh, the, the HoloLens too, so their position will get even stronger here. Uh, and then last but not least, 
Microsoft has this cash pile of $136 billion and a net income of $61 billion, right? Where do you think they're going to put that money? You know, they own the operating system space. They own cloud, office, et cetera. They're going to have no choice but to acquire more companies in the metaverse space to become this dominant player. And so I think right now the race for the metaverse has three players. You have Microsoft, you have Meta, and you have the entire crypto ecosystem. And, and, and so there's three players, and I think that's the game that we're playing right now. Yeah, look, I mean, I think, uh, not, not to dwell too much on this, but the question always is, you know, we talk about NFTs being so powerful, and Visa, for instance, buying a punk. Certainly Facebook, Microsoft, making a book push, push, push into the metaverse. The, the question, though, is, and it's an open question because I don't really know the answer to this, is can an existing company rebrand and pivot entirely into how we think of Web3. And I, I, I find it difficult. Like I, I've talked to, for instance, Axie guys and gaming CEOs that, that are like crypto native first, if you will. Like meaning the keys are, there's like no owner, the community owns, community owned projects. Let's put it that way. And I don't know, like the question is, can, can you foresee someone like Zynga, for instance, pivoting to all together and really just going full on Web3 issue a token, somehow that token like represents the, the equity value? I, I don't really know, right? Because they have shareholders. I find it difficult to to conceptualize how that pivot goes smoothly. Um, but, you know, of course, the real question here is, well, this is sort of like a vanilla watered down version of how we think about the metaverse, which is ultimately, I think the number one property that I get most excited about is this idea that you can own stuff and it's yours, right? You can't be censored necessarily. There's a lot of power in, in, in immutability of these protocols that allow you to build and the certainty if you're okay, if you're a developer, right? <clears throat> For the last 10, 15 years, you have been beholden to Google's algorithm for SEO, Facebook's policies, um, the app store policies, maybe Microsoft, some sort of like data guarded data silos in gardens that they don't share with you. That's pretty frustrating from a developer standpoint. Right? If you're a new startup, the question is, I think this is a real question. If you are a new project, where are you going to build on which ecosystem are you going to go and build? Is that Microsoft, Facebook's, Google's, or this open kind of call it Ethereum or Solana or I think that, that that's the thing that we need to monitor. I don't have the answer to that today, but that is, I think, what will tell us. So I would push back on one thing, which is like, can these legacy companies become Web3 companies and can they get into crypto? Microsoft has no intention of getting into crypto. I w I'd bet every dollar I have, right? They're not, you, Microsoft doesn't want to create a user-owned world. They want to create a Microsoft-owned world, right? And Definitely. Yeah. And so, so, but I think what they will do, and like when you just look at these games that they have, man, like they just acquired 150 million monthly active users uh, from all the Activision games. And so they're just doing a massive race to acquire all of these users uh, and acquire all the best games, operating systems, uh, work, build the best working systems like teams and all that kind of stuff. And I would push back on you, Santi, and say, I think a lot of people don't give a damn about owning goods. I think there will be a group of people that cares a lot about it and they will go play in the, the crypto first metaverse for the first like five years. I think the first five years, maybe even 10 years, the crypto first metaverse won't be as good as the Microsoft metaverse. 
if Microsoft makes all this stuff interoperable, like makes it so that you can, you know, move an asset from Call of Duty to World of Warcraft over to Candy Crush, like that, that's really cool. That's really powerful. And the games are already so good. But over time, as the startups build on these crypto first rails in the crypto first metaverse, that's when they eventually overtake them. But it'll take time. Probably, you know, I, I think so. Like that, that, that's like, I see your point. Um, I, th I, I think, okay. Like call of duty and world of Warcraft and like, they're, they're great franchises. No, no question about it. I don't think a, a game, a crypto native game pound for pound today competes against that, but I don't think we're that far off. Like your estimation is five, 10 years. I actually think like, go look at Alluvium. I keep calling Alluvium because to me, that's. I look at the graphics and I'm, I'm like, this is actually something I'd love to play. Um, you know, it's not too, I love Zelda. I love these type of games and it's super immersive. And, you know, I just think that that's, I don't know. I don't have an answer to this. It's, it's a good, it's a good thing to keep on the back of my mind to ask some, a lot of the gaming projects that are coming on to our podcast, which is how are you credibly going to compete against, uh, a very immersive game because obviously Joey, for instance, in the pod yesterday, and he's right, right? And I've said it for a long time, which is Axie is not very immersive. It has, like, in, like anything in crypto, you are making certain trade-offs of, of, of responsibilities that you have as a user for owning your keys um, or playing Axie, for instance, okay, not the best game, but you're earning SLP and that's interesting, right? Right. And so we'll link it on the show notes, but, you know, I, I would love... I think we need to be honest about the, the quality of the games that are being produced, but you know, I don't think we're that far off, to be honest. I mean, we actually we wrote this guide, What is Alluvium, on Blockwork. It came out a couple of days ago. I mean, these graphics are nuts. Mind you, I, so like when I, uh, full disclosure, I was a seed investor in Alluvium. Uh, I'm very involved in this project, so you'll keep hearing me talk about it. But I've been super impressed. The first time I met Kieran, he said, my, the, the team that is actually developing this game comes from building world-class franchises at Marvel Entertainment, um, this guy built like, was one of the was one of the guys that like was front and center in building Lord of the Rings cinematography. I've also invested in another game where <clears throat> this guy is like the right hand guy uh, for James Cameron, the producer for Avatar. I mean, these are the kind of founders that you're coming into Web three. So from my vantage point, I'm seeing all of this talent come into this space. And, and these are guys that have huge opportunity costs. You talk about Mark Pincus, who's the CEO of, of, of Zynga. Like, he, he, he put a, a CryptoPunk as his profile picture. Um, he, from what I understand, has been very interested in, in Web3 and play to earn, play and earn. So, again, as always, Jason, we talk about the Electric Capital Report. Um, we, we have really talented developers and game, um, you know, experienced game executives I also invested in another company where this guy, like the founder of Counter-Strike is one of the advisors and like a co-founder of this project. Like, I'll just drop you those three, maybe a little bit of Alpha League, but at some point, like you tell me when, when you see something like that, I, I find it hard to say, well, Microsoft to this point is, has more resources, more, more people building, but very quickly you can, you know, people can build a, a really nice like game and and really rival a lot of these franchises yeah i would say i'm going to end on this point and then we'll move on to tokenomics last mm. but not least microsoft just paid 1.5x the total market cap of all nfts the entire nft market they paid 150 percent of that to buy a company to help with their metaverse plans so yes we are still very early <laughs> tokenomics um 
I want to play devil's advocate to something I've been saying the last two weeks. If you missed the shows the last week or two, uh, here, here's kind of what we've been saying. Like the last couple of years, it was kind of just get this token out the door. At least that was my take. Maybe some you disagreed. Get, you get the token out the door, you figure it out later. And now we've kind of entered the figure it out later phase, right? It was always figure it out later. And now we are in the figure it out later phase. Uh, and you know now it's kind of about how can I tweak governance to really accrue value and how to improve value of the platform and how to incentivize the users, right? That's kind of coming back into vogue. You see things like Daniel Sesta and Andre have linked up uh, to create their thing. I think they announced it last night in like the Frog Nation radio thing. It was called Solid with the token Rock, I'm pretty sure. Uh, you've got the you know VE voting escrow. You've got the Curve Wars and all that kind of th stuff. I've been thinking about this a lot over the last week or so. The more I think about it, the more I think we are putting too much of a focus on tokenomics. There's too much of a focus on the token and not enough focus on the product. And it was actually Joey, the episode with Joey that we did that came out yesterday um, where he said, you know, at Augur, we spent months and months and months thinking about the token, right? Thinking about the tokenomics, but we didn't put enough time and energy into thinking about the product. And I think about, I think about the kind of what I've seen it to be a successful strategy recently, like maybe DYDX launching with, not super decentralized to start and you launch you you kind of race to get product market fit you then start decentralizing a little bit to the community and then step three is you fully decentralize right it's like product market fit then you get the community involved and then you go full decentralized uh, into like a DAO or something like that and i just think there's so much focus on the on the token and, and honestly not enough focus on the product so i wanted to get your take on that i i agree with that but that's not necessarily new, right? I mean, I, a lot of these projects ship a token as a way to build a community in the same way that Bored Apes issued all these 10,000 apes and has built a pretty impressive community across the world in a very distributed way that feels really passionately. And then, you know, I, I think it challenges this notion of how product development and company scaling happens perhaps in a Web3 context, right? Which is what you're saying. What, what, what I'm increasingly seeing is projects that issue a token that is has the right type of incentives to attract a particular type of user that is then going to hopefully not always stick around and then, and then just be, be part of that. And I don't have a perfect answer to that. I think it's an interesting, like hypothetical, which is can, and maybe we'll be talking about this in five years time, which is, wow, like maybe this was the start of a new way for companies to bootstrap, certainly from a token raising perspective, like either issuing NFTs or issuing a token, but more so from, uh, customer acquisition and retention standpoint. You're always thinking about product-centering companies. I, it's easier for me to understand. You build a great product that has a very established market that customers are willing to pay for. You know, you build Blockworks. You had the idea that there was a void in the market of creating a very powerful media company that was understood crypto in a way that not like CNBC and Bloomberg, like you know, make a mockery of this space because they don't understand any of this shit. Um, you saw that. You built a product, and here we are. And what if you could just today say, hey, you, Jason, are a recognizable figure like Andre or Daniel. I say, I'm going to issue NFTs. Say, say today that I decide, okay, listen, I'm going to build something. Maybe. I've been thinking about a lot of project, projects, ideas that I have. And I try to uh, sort of experiment with this in Christmas, which is I, I gave, what was it, 20 people <clears throat> 30 minutes of my time. And I, and I will issue NFTs to these people. And they could redeem it at any point, and, it, it, and you burn this NFT, and, I, and you have 30 minutes of my time. Maybe that's the start of a consulting company, 9159 Consulting. <laughs> and then I use NFTs to 
as, as a way to build like a subscription model and, you know, track customer engagement and all this stuff. I don't have a product yet other than my brand, I guess, but like, I don't know, you could argue that's not worth much. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, you, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I do agree with you that it is, it is frustrating. And I do sympathize with this view that like a lot of projects, products in crypto have been for the last 10 years, kind of like, eh, like auger, eh, you know, a lot of potential, but you know, really very clunky, hard to use. But Bored Apes, to me, was the start of perhaps something that is worth, like, just noting and observing of can you totally kind of reinvent how, how companies go to market, build product around a community. Because ultimately, Jason, I think the, 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 the customer is always right. The customer will always tell, tell you what he wants. The, the, the thing that is different from traditional startups to, to Web3 is the customer owns a big part of the company. The customer owns this token. You talk about in a prior episode we had, which is, well, wait a minute. Like, I, I, I can own all these shares of these companies. What do I care? I can just dump the, the stock and move on. But people feel, I think, a much more sense of ownership when they have, when they believe that they credibly own a token or an NFT of a project. And that, I think, is what is perhaps overlooked, which is that creates a lot of a virality loop. That creates a lot of network effects, I believe. And it creates a sense of ownership and entitlement to build and not abandon the system and build a product, right? And sometimes, like I've seen so many projects in the space where like Index Coop, for instance, was a great example where they just had a, a decent product, but a lot of people from the community obviously provided liquidity, got the token, and then, man, half of the team at this point came from the community. So I'll just stop there, but I think it's, uh, I don't disagree. I think it's a really good point that you bring. A lot of focus at, so, at some point, I will say at some point, you got to build a good product. If you don't want to build right. a good product, no amount right. of token incentives and pontonomics are going to make it for this crap. Like you're just going to die. And, and, and a really good builder is going to come and really prove that ultimately great products win. I'm not challenging that notion. I'm just challenging the steps that you take and in what direction and what sequence happens. I think that's being inverted in an interesting way. Like, I, I guess just the curve wars, like the more I read about the curve wars and try to understand the curve wars, it feels like it's less about curve the product, right? And it feels like it's more about just the ability to introduce systematic bribery at scale. And on, like on one hand, uh, this is kind of like the negative hand, the curve wars do two things. One is it pumps the price of the curve token so whales can farm and maybe dump and get higher yields. And then two, uh, it keeps certain that undesirable stables, uh, kind of keeps these undesirable stables on life support uh, long enough to fake it. This is the really pessimistic view, but like long enough to fake adoption and then dump these overvalued governance tokens uh, for the stable coins on kind of the retail market. So like simply said there, the that that view says like the VE token market is delusional, right? That's the a, as pessimistic as you can get. On the other hand, uh, you know, the founder of Frax, Sam, uh, had this take. He's like the majority of curve liquidity exists to enforce stability, not to actually earn fee revenue. Uh, and there's no competitor in DeFi that solves this exact use case, right? Protocols bribe CRV, VCX holders to rent this stability. Uh, and I guess just simply said here, like, there's something more subtle and interesting going on. This is the start of something interesting. And my favorite part of what Sam said is there's no competitor in DeFi that solves this exact use case. So then it is about the product, right? I guess, where do you fall out on this? Like A, the no, entire VE market is delusional or B, there's really something more subtle and interesting going on here i think the latter i mean i'm 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 still observing and making up my mind uh 
I, I take stock in the fact that there's a lot of attention from protocols to compete where the users with the liquidity is and divert fees to their protocol. And I mean, we talked about this, like, I think over time, these governance tokens do have a lot of value. I mean, I, I think that's sort of my takeaway, at least for now. Um, and, but yeah, it feels to me like there, there is a lot of, a lot of perhaps attention. Is it well-founded? Is it the most constructive and the most useful like use of energy? I don't know. You could argue both ways, I think. Yeah. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting updates from Avalanche, one of the leading L1s. First, the Particle NFT sale powered by Avalanche. Particle has fractionalized high-end art into 10,000 NFTs, the first piece being Banksy's. Love is in the air. Check it out, particlecollection.com. Number two, an ILO, Initial Litigation Offering, has started on Avalanche in partnership with Rival, Rival with a Y, a community fundraising platform for court cases. Really interesting use case there. Uh, number three, enterprise partnerships growing on Avalanche. Deloitte recently partnered with them to optimize logistics around natural disaster relief and claims payouts. MasterCard also tapped them to help accelerate crypto startups. Uh, number four, last but not least, I got an early look at a report from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that shows the energy usage of various L1s. Avalanche came out very low in terms of total energy usage relative to other L1s. Thank you, Avalanche. Big thanks for sponsoring Empire. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I always try to make the analogy to Web2, which is probably the wrong thing to do. But I always I think about like with, with liquidity mining, I think about Uber, right? When Uber launched, I remember getting these Uber rides for like a buck ninety nine, And now, now 10 years later, the market has stabilized. Uber prices are are what they actually should be, which is like, I don't know, in New York, it's like 40 bucks a ride now. It's absurd. But it's not that absurd because that's what it, or like 30 bucks a ride. It's like, that's what a taxi used to cost. That's the market equilibrium of a, of a ride. None of these marketplaces, probably very few of them, would have actually gone off the ground in Web2 land had you not been in this Ponzi macro environment of low rates where you had folks, big funds, cheap capital to pile on to hopefully make unit economics work in year five, seven. Like that was the hope. Now, right. very few of these companies are actually profitable from a unit economic standpoint. Like, like oh, look at uh, Blue Apron, all these food delivery companies. Man, shit, you could have eaten for free for a year in San Francisco, New York, some of these other places, because all these different startups, VC-backed startups like SoftBank, dumb money, piling into these companies <laughs> to hopefully one day see the light of day. The unit economics never worked. Never worked from day one, never worked ever, because it only gets more competitive. This is sort of peel. Peter Thiel's truism, which is you want to be in an, as close to a monopoly as possible. But when capital is really cheap and anyone can just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do Blue Apron 2.0, like that doesn't work. Like I think Uber, if you look at the stats, like I remember like looking at it in a private round when TPG invested, man, very few CDs are actually profitable. Very few. I, I think on a lot of them, they don't break even. Look, look at what happened in China. I mean, you're just going to compete. And so it becomes this, again, back to it's tying it to Web3, it becomes this, who has the most amount of backers and muscle, and in this case, token design and incentives to go around to hopefully one day make sure that people stick around, you build a good product. But this is why, this is why I go back to like a lot of these token designs are terribly constructed, like, like terribly constructed. And they'll probably go down as the most expensive customer acquisition strategies. 
uh, out there because they don't focus on retention and anyone can go and farm and dump. And it's just like really unsustainable. Now, a lot of people might take options as, well, you're kind of creating value from thin air, right? Because you, you somehow minted this arbitrary token called CRV. People believe it has value. People believe it's worth X billion. At the, at the peak of the, of the dot-com bubble, AOL had a ridiculous market cap. And I think it went, like, it went on to acquire a bunch of properties because it had all this acquisition currency to go out and buy all these businesses. Mm. And then, of course, like, it kind of collapsed. And so I think like that's sort of like... I think we're kind of repeating a lot of these mistakes from, from dot-com uh, days where, you know, people are minting these tokens that have a lot of value or at least perceived value because it has these incentives. And we should get to Ohm in a second here because this is kind of the exact same kind of dynamic here where it creates these propped up kind of reflexive dynamic where people... You know, it's kind of like, who's a greater fool? But, like, you keep going. Like, it's, don't, you hate, don't the hate the player, the hate the game. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like that. Like, I mean, a lot of these, there is a fine line between token incentives and well-constructed token design and Ponzonomics. Right. It gets confused by so many people. But it's important to understand what, what kind of game you're playing and if it's sustainable. Yeah. By the way, the deal was AOL buying Time Warner, the largest media company and entertainment conglomerate in the entire world back in 2000 they bought them in january 10th 2000 for 162 billion it is widely regarded as the worst acquisition of all time <laughs> yeah so um all right you want to talk olympus dow you want to talk ohm yes yeah I, I will preface all of this by saying i i there's a great thread by cyrus who used to be a maker yeah. and i think he did probably the best diagnosis of what ended up happening. So Olympus, uh, <clears throat> basically Olympus throughout the summer, um, you know, May through August was floating around 200 to 300 bucks, ran up to like 450, 500, 600 at one point, came back down to like 200 and then had an absolutely legendary rise from August uh, through, no, through I think it was like October 30th maybe, peaking out, uh, ran up from 200 to 1200. The three month chart is an absolute, just a brutal, brutal, blood hammer of a chart running down from 1200 to I think they're sub 200 right now uh, over the 90 over 90 days so I've got thoughts uh, and actually I, in our newsletter yesterday our newsletter writer Byron absolute absolutely brilliant I think he's the Matt Levine of crypto uh, kind of compared it to the Stan Druckenmiller uh, George Soros shorting the British pound, uh, reading a little bit of Byron's newsletter here. Basically in 92, uh, Stan Druckenmiller was working for George Soros, uh, I think. Uh, George Soros, uh, he basically came to him with the idea to short the British pound and said that he already had 100% of their fund committed to the trade. And Soros, like the absolutely sa savage investor that he is, he said, what's wrong with you? For a one-way bet like this, he thought 100% was too conservative. So he told Druckenmiller to double it. Right. And Soros was basically willing to go all in because he recognized that the Bank of England was the only buyer of sterling at that rate, which was then fixed by the exchange rate mechanism. Uh, and they also only had $44 billion of reserves to buy it with and basically prop it up with. Uh, whereas Soros could essentially borrow unlimited amounts to short it. And he basically, I mean, he knew how much the Bank of England could buy uh, and he knew that he could sell more. Right. So he shorted. Uh, he shorted the pound or the sterling, and that's why Sor uh, people say that Soros in 1992 broke the Bank of England, right? He he broke the peg, and they were forced to uh, – the Bank of England was forced to get off the peg, and the thing absolutely tanked, uh, and he, he was short and made, and made a killing. 
Uh, and that's so the comparison to Ohm is that, you know, the idea behind Olympus Dow was to break DeFi's resistance or excuse me, reliance on these mercenary liquidity providers by providing uh, or really owning its own liquidity and enabling other protocols to do the same thing. Uh, but the problem with owning your own liquidity is that you own your own liquidity, right? So Olympus Dow quickly became the only market maker in the Ohm token, uh, which means that, you know, kind of like the Bank of England, Olympus Dow has been the sole buyer of its own token all the way down. So in the same way that Soros drained the Bank of England's reserves by making them buy the pounds that he was shorting, the market has been draining the Olympus Dow treasury by selling it Ohm. And if you're watching on YouTube, I've got this other chart. Uh, you can see the reserves of, I think this is the reserves of Olympus Dow, and you can, see their, you can see their die that they have. Their die is just decreasing pretty rapidly, and this is because they're being forced to use the die to buy, up, to buy it up, right? To prop it up, basically. And I can share that longer um, in, in the actual YouTube video when we put it live, but the largest portion of the treasury is held in the USD stablecoin die, right? And the, the amount has been falling as Olympus Dow spends it on Ohm because they're the sole market maker in these liquidity pools. So I think that's that's the comparison to Soros breaking the Bank of England. Uh, and it, right now, I mean, right now it's not looking good for them. I, I will say that. Well, it's not, right? And so uh, Soros is one of the, in my mind, one of the best investors. And he has this great book called The Alchemy of Finance. And in my learnings and observing markets, especially crypto, you need to understand the conflict of uh, the, the concept of reflexivity. It's this idea that like things can spiral up and down very quickly, and they're very reflexive. Meaning, the you know it, it sort of is like think of it a tornado, right? As it gets more force, and it, it continue, it just sort of gains velocity. And velocity is probably not the right term for a tornado, but you know what I mean. It gets more momentum. And we, we see this time and time again in crypto markets, um, you know, especially in DeFi, you know, where, for instance, Curve and the, and the, rate, and the, and the APY of a particular protocol like Curve then determines how, in, how attractive, you know, farming in, in a vault like urine is. And then that feeds and it's sort of very reflexive and it creates more demand and then most people pile in and, you know what I mean? And so like that feeds more APY and that you're in this kind of like it's humming, right? And, and, and you see this in DeFi summary, you see this Olympus, right? Olympus is like a is a closed end mutual fund, and and I think Cyrus uh, and we'll link it up here in the show notes. He did a very very good I think assessment of what Olympus really is. I mean I think this whole idea of the stable kind of monetary kind of narrative was like I don't want to say misguided. It was just sort of irrelevant. When you think about it. It's sort of like a mutual fund. What what it, what it does is you give Olympus now your liquidity and like it buys that. Like in in exchange for that you get some sort of like LP shares, right? And like. It's great. It's all nice and you know honky dory when like the value of your shares is much much greater than like NAV, right? Sometimes mutual funds trade at a discount or a premium to net asset value, and whenever that happens, sort of like a, I hate closing mutual funds for this reason. Anytime like this happens, like it, it just sort of creates like GBTC, right? The same stuff, like the grayscale premium, like all this stuff is like is very difficult, uh, and it ha there are inefficiencies that that that, that happen. To tie back to Soros' concept of reflexivity is, well, I mean, think of it this way. I, th I think I was just reading this today. So Ohm, the token, I think this was like yesterday, but there, it was off like, what, 91% from its highs? And yet again, it's still trading. If you look at Ohm, the market, it's still trading like 70% above its treasury value. Like, just think about that for a second. You just don't see this stuff in traditional markets. Like, the, like is it possible? I mean, 
this is, I think, the argument for a lot of the, a lot of the folks who are like observing this and saying it's going to break at some point. Like anything that trades at that amount of premium to net asset value should come down. Like it just the laws of gravity is going to pull it down. So I don't know where this ends. To be honest, like I'm not going to be totally dismissive of the O model. I think it has this idea of like protocol owned liquidity to be more kind of like it was just like buying a lot of. I think that the I'll just say this: the, the idea of protocol owned liquidity is interesting. There are other protocols that are exploring it. But I think it's worth noting that like these unsustainable APYs and where they're coming from, I'll, t- I'll say time and time again, if you don't understand where the yield is coming from, you are the yield, right? And so this is idea of like everyone compiling into this ohm trade because it fed into this rebasing that created a higher APY and everyone's like happy and great and ohm to the moon and all this crap. But then very quickly, the same dynamic that propped up all these APYs is how this thing collapses and it's going to trade to par like it, or a discount. It should probabilistically a closed end fund should more likely than not trade at a discount, not a premium. Why? Because there's a liquidity discount that you have to apply. So anytime something trades at a premium, you're left wondering, it's just a matter of time. And again, it goes back to this idea, no amount of ponzonomics are going to fix that. Like you see in time and time again, whether it's the bank yeah. of England, whether it's a closed end fund, like grayscale products, like anytime there's a huge, huge premium, these things more likely than not should trade at a discount, not a premium. Yeah. Yeah. Or if they're trading at a premium, it's like, like a REIT, right? Like a REIT usually trades at like a 10, 20% premium um, because yeah. they put the capital into productive assets, but that's a 10, 20% premium, right? The value of Olympus Dow's treasury or their market cap was like, I think it was like 4X, 400% uh, the yeah. treasury at one point. So yeah, yeah no, why then sustainable? Yeah. So, I mean, let's applying this now to the curve stuff. Like the, re- the main reasons Ohm isn't working, honestly, it's just market exhaustion, loss of the narrative, external FUD maybe. Uh, but I, th- but I really think it's just loss of attention, right? And you see this happen over and over and over again in crypto is things run up because all of the attention of crypto Twitter's on it. And as soon as people lose the attention, it runs back down. Uh, and I'm slightly worried that this happens to some of the VE three of three stuff. There's everyone's talking about, everyone's talking about VE right now. VE is so hot when it loses attention. What happens? It just always has felt to me that, and this is why I like why we do these discussions, because we talk about narrative watches a lot. The, and it's kind of interesting to just observe what are the hottest narratives. And you almost want to like counter trade that if you're patient. Maybe not, counter, maybe not short a particular narrative that's super hot. Hot narratives can become powerful narratives. You know what I mean? I think D5 was a hot narrative when Compound launched. It became now a strong narrative, I think, but not in the limelight. And I think you all, it's worth revisiting over time. Like what have been the hot, super hot narratives that fizzled out, not getting a lot of love. You almost want to kind of look at that. And so this V stuff is just like, I don't know. It's, it's not as interesting to me, candidly. I like this DeFi 2.0 stuff. Uh, uh, but again, like, okay, we talk in this episode with Joey and, you know, I continue to believe like you almost want to just say, what's your margin of safety? Probabilistically, a lot of stuff in crypto in traditional markets is priced to perfection. It takes very little, and this is like the breaking point, right? Which you don't want to be close to this fire, which is what is the margin of error of the stuff that you're investing in? And I understand there's a lot of hype around these things and the market continue to be irrational. Fine. I get it. Probably is not useful to shorten this market because things can just behave very irrationally for a long time, but at least don't get burned. And at least maybe put your, your attention into stuff that, you know, like Ethereum, for instance, it's not a sexy trade. The merge is coming. More validation that it's coming, probably in Q2. 
you see all this activity. It's not sexy. People always want to, it's like biotech investing. People always want to find the next jam and like, this is a treasure hunting quest. But more likely than not, most people don't find gold and have to pack up their shit and go home. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I let's let's leave it on this one note. I think that there's, I think that anyone who's thinking about tokenomics right now should kind of bucket it into five areas. You've got distribution, right? Make sure that the token's distributed fairly to a wide range of stakeholders. You've got price discovery, right? To make sure that there's like fair bottoms up price discovery. Uh, you've got to make sure that it's liquid and that there's a float, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got to make sure that you also want to make sure that it's, it's decentralized, right? And that there's not massive market makers who, who hold or massive investors who hold too much of the tokens. So um, let, let's move on. Uh, DeFi, you, uh, you mentioned you know tokenomics, maybe a little bit boring. DeFi, a little more exciting. Uh, Joey talked a lot about it on the episode that was released yesterday saying DeFi is the most undervalued sector of crypto. I think he's right. I think that he's dead on. Um, these, some of these tokens, these tier one Tokens are down 50 to 80% against ETH. I mean, A, we're just due for a reversion to the mean. But B, I think that there's an area of DeFi that people aren't talking about, which is, uh, you know, people talk about permission DeFi. People talk about DeFi 2.0. And some of these, like, DeFi 2.0 is usually related to some of these, like, tokenomics things. Uh, what people are not talking about is the new types of DeFi that are coming out that are built specifically for institutions, right? Like primitive FI. I think uh, Primitive Five was looking at it last night. It's like derivatives, uh, a derivatives-based AMMs, right? It's like derivatives without oracles. You've got like Squeeth. You've got the insurance company that you and Joey were talking about yesterday. You've got Notional Finance doing like fixed-rate lending with a novel, this like novel, novel capital-efficient AMM design. Uh, and, and like those are institutional products, right? And that unlocks a lot of capital coming into the space because institutions, we know this, they don't just trade spot. They don't just want simple lend and borrow. They want these complex financial products. And that is what I'm starting to see more and more of. Well, look, I mean, uh, when, uh, you know, we were building Parify, uh, and Ben's coming on the pod tomorrow, probably air next week. And we'll talk about this stuff. When Ben and I were like trying to get like raised capital, everyone was like, what's this DeFi thing? Like, why not just invest in like more general stuff? Like it feels like really niche. And look, I mean, DeFi now is kind of front and center. It went through this quick phase of summer and then like fizzled out and reflexivity. And I think a lot of it was just like, you know, there's a lot of hype and all this stuff, liquidity farming and what have you. But still, like one point that I'll emphasize and I want to make very clear, which is the number one probably criticism is this is just like a casino. People come here because the APYs are high and that's it. People farm and dump and none of this is like really going anywhere. Look at the users. Fine. Okay. I get that point. But here's the reason. I've always felt that the most amount of value probably of, of, of like crypto in general is redefining financial functions in a very concrete area, which is you want to minimize counterparty risk when you're interacting with money and transferring value. Bitcoin showed you that you can store and transfer value. Something like a smart contract, more generalized function, allows you to program money. And you still have the same properties of minimizing counterparty risk, of, of you execute logic without the arbitrary kind of functions that banks that have, you have very little transparency into. And so this entire financial system is continues to have a lot of friction because it's a patchwork of stuff that doesn't work and doesn't talk to each other. Think of how much value Plaid has created. Plaid just like, Oh, I was like one app to talk to another. I mean that, that kind of 
the, the, the idea of plaid goes away in, in a composable system that is DeFi. And so you remove all this friction. It's not about the yield. And I'll tell you, yields probably will continue to be high because you're doing two things on, on two sides. You're trimming a lot of fat, meaning think about when you buy a house. There's 10, <laughs> 10 steps, all these costs that are embedded in notaries and land verification and all this crap and funding and all this stuff and, and credit approvals and yada, 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 yada. That goes away. That literally goes away when you have an NFT that represents your credit score in real time that assess all your financial health over the last 10 years. Like, okay, boom. You all of a sudden fire like half of the department in, more, in, in Wells Fargo. Great. Which means you get a better rate because they transfer some of that cost savings over to you in a lower rate. Okay, beautiful, right? And so now also you're opening up like literally the floodgates to these financial products to so many people. And I think, you know, I think what I would say is the last thing I'll say, and I'll stop rambling is, like, how big can this get, right? I think it's important to understand, like, there are certain, two things. There are certain things in DeFi that haven't been, that have been tried but haven't been successful because you've been in a, this environment in an L1 that is pretty expensive, i.e. Ethereum. In an L2 environment or in a higher throughput environment like Solana or, or Cosmos, things get pretty interesting, particularly things like options and perps, which are really interesting, especially for institutions that don't want to hold spot, that want to play, like, these perps. Uh, and options like these are like massive markets they will be built they will be successful and i think now is the right time because it is cheaper and is actually viable um and the other one is you know how much tvl is in DeFi today 100 billion that's a drop in the bucket in the financial system there's a great chart that someone posted yesterday which is if, one, if the top 100 banks like put like one percent of their aum on DeFi, it will it would be like this number, which is peanuts, hundred billion, yeah. goes to like trillion plus. In our episode with Stani that we recorded when we were thinking about partnering up, I said, "Look, we can probably get to a trillion by the end of next year." I, I kind of believe. I'm it. going to mark this now. I was going to make a tweet thread about this, which sounds obnoxious. I'm going to call it right now. I also think we hit a trillion. It, this is the refl- another another tying it to a concept of reflexivity. In order for like a big bank to become interested in playing in this environment. There needs to be large dollars of work, right? And so as, as a big bank like Santander, JP Morgan, I think you start to see like Santander issue bonds on the Ethereum blockchain. Like it was just sort of a trial run. I think it was more marketing. And Santander is kind of like a tier three bank or something. And so like, okay, you don't see JP Morgan or Goldman do this. And I'm not just saying JP Morgan because I work there. But anyways, um, I used to work there, I guess. Um, but um, I think as, as you hit 100 billion, as you hit 50 billion, 100 billion, 200 as you hit these milestones, it becomes actually a viable business model for these banks where they say, okay, there's capacity in this market, there's users, there's volume. It's interesting, right? In the same way that like people now allow customers to buy Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and some of the larger crypto assets because, I mean, these are non-trivial, very liquid markets and that's a lot of fees for these guys. And so anyways, nonetheless, I mean, I think we're at that point. And, and I think institu- like permission DeFi environments like you see in Ave Arc or maybe Compound um, or maybe this Terra redacted stuff or MasterCard. Like, I feel like these things are really what propels kind of DeFi front and center in a more sustainable way this year. And you're right. A lot of these assets have traded very, very poorly against Ethereum. You know, would yeah. I want to be touching NFTs or DeFi? Well, you know my answer to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the extension of this, like we love the narratives is, uh, you know, I, I, there's always been this like DeFi is here to bank the unbanked. Uh, 
I'm hopeful that it does that, but I think the real narrative is that, you know why DeFi is so exciting? It's this fully transparent financial system that is built in a digitally first model. There's a lot of good that will come from that, but like that is my mental model for how I view DeFi. And that's why it's exciting. And, and, uh, if there's a regulator listening out there, I think what I always emphasize is finance today as it exists in traditional markets needs to be regulated because you don't know. And the clearest example of this, when you deposit money in a bank, you don't know what they're doing with it. You have no visibility. They just, you sort of assume that, okay, there's FDIC insurance up to 125000 I believe. But beyond that, you're left hanging like in 2008 where no one thought the Lehman was doing all this dumb stuff. And so you need a regulator, a watchdog to say, hey, listen, you need to have certain solvency ratios and capital efficiency ratios and all this stuff. And we're going to check them on an ongoing basis to make sure that you're not doing crazy stuff. But still, anytime, anytime in this system, anytime, it's not a matter of can the system be corrupted. It's sort of a matter of time. That's it. Right. Yeah. But in, 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 and now you juxtapose that with a, some, a system like Aave, where you deposit your money into this smart contract that you can in like in real time, 24, seven, 365 inspect and verify the solvency of said, the, 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 the veracity of that, right? There the assets are there. This is my health ratio. If it falls below X, you're going to be liquidated automatically. Like that is that minimize again, it, there is no counterparty. There is smart contract risk and we should focus on that and create insurance solutions like risk harbor that are really focused on automating the insurance payout, which is also a novelty, right? Because in traditional markets, like you're beholden to human ambiguity to do like, to, to like do risk assessment, like insurance assessment to make sure that you can get pay your claim. But when you're dealing with binary stuff and program money, there is no ambiguity or there is less ambiguity in some cases. And that, again, you remove a lot of friction in, of, of this equation. And it's not about high yields. It's not about like this crazy casino that people keep talking about. Maybe that is like something that is needed to attract people, right? Speculation always is necessary for any technology kind of trend. But you're right. I mean, the per- I don't think people truly kind of appreciate this idea of like you can program money if then statements and you minimize counterparty risk. But like anyone... <laughs> Anyone that lived through 2008 knows how powerful that is. Yep. Blockchains are not networks. Blockchains are cities. This is from Hasib Qureshi. Um, we will put a link in the show notes if you guys haven't read it. Uh, but basically, Hasib wrote a great post. Um, Hasib's really good at having these like kind of simple mental models to help you understand where we're at in crypto. And this one is talking about the quote-unquote L1 wars. Here's the here's his idea. Blockchains are usually described as networks, which applies, which kind of implies that there are these like endlessly extensible uh, networks, like maybe the internet or like Facebook, right? Um, but that networks are actually his his thesis is that networks are the wrong analogy for blockchains. And he, you know, if, if blockchains really are networks, then network effects dominate because one blockchain will ultimately win because that's how the network effects game works. The difference between blockchains and networks is that blockchains, again, this is from Hasib, not me, blockchains are physically constrained, right? If blocks were arbitrarily big, he says, the blockchain could not be decentralized. And that and that's kind of a throwback to, if you remember the, obviously, the block wars of 2017. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if you get bigger and bigger blocks, then you need, uh, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming what he means here is if blocks were arbitrarily big, the blockchain could not be decentralized. I'm assuming what this means is that bigger blocks require like almost bigger, more hardware and more computing power. Therefore, 
it requires people with more and more capital who can be the miners and the validators. But anyways, that's conversation for another time. Uh, and so what he says is smart contract chains are more like cities. So let's take Ethereum. He says, Ethereum is expensive, congested, slow, and only the wealthy can afford to interact with it. Ethereum is New York City. New York has the biggest banks, the most billionaires, the hottest brands, and the hottest celebrities. Ethereum has the biggest DeFi protocols, the most TVL, the hottest DAOs, and the hottest NFTs. But it's expensive. If you're an up-and-comer, you're late to the party, you're priced out. So how do you scale New York? The first approach is to build up. That is, build skyscrapers. Skyscrapers let you fit more people into the same land. And he makes the comparison to L2s, right? That L2s, in a nutshell, roll-ups let you scale, scale an L1 vertically. But like with skyscrapers, you don't actually escape the constraints of an L1, he says. When you want to move between roll-ups, you still have to deal with L1 congestion. Uh, and so then, you know, he kind of continues to go on and says, maybe all these are connected by a highway system like Polkadot's relay chain or Cosmos's Cosmos hub. But, uh, you know, similar to in the real world, they're not going to be the lion's share of where people do, you know, live and, and do business. And so that leaves the third approach, which is building more cities. And when you build a new city, you have to re duplicate a lot of the infrastructure, roads, police station, hospital, et cetera. In the same way that with a new L1, you have to build a new block explorer, AMM, lending protocol, NFT marketplace. Uh, and as he says it, the nice thing about building a new city is that each city can be built differently. So let's take Solana. Solana is LA, big, sprawling, cheap compared to New York. I'm going to cruise through some of these because it's a long thread, but Avalanche, Avalanche is Chicago trying to be the next Wall Street, but it's newer, it's cheaper, it's more aggressive. Uh, near, near is like San Francisco. It's built for the web three techies. It's an idealistic city full of people who want to fulfill the Ethereum 3.0 dream. And I think this is an interesting framework and I want to, I have some counters to it, but first I want to hear your thoughts on whether or not you like this analogy to cities. I do. Uh, I've actually heard to see, um, and I borrowed this concept from a while back. Uh, which I think is true. Like I believe in a multi-chain world and I think urban development also get blueprint of how these things will evolve. It's not a winner take all. And I think like, because there are different applications, not everyone think about this way to extend this analogy. Uh, New York skews finance. Chicago skews like really good, like uh, initially like in industrials and, and more so like now, like, 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 tr like very sophisticated traders, LA is entertainment, San Francisco startups. And so, I think, I think that's where I'm going with this, which is these cities, these blockchains are going to cater perhaps to more like different use cases based on their security and, and, and kind of technical benefits and drawbacks, right? When you think about social, you think about um, gaming, that probably, you can probably live with less security guarantees than if you want to use DeFi, which, you know, you want to be as close or the most secure, meaning New York, London. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, in urban development, there's a lot, you know, people commute in and out of these cities. Not everyone lives in Manhattan. People live in Greenwich. People live in, in Jersey. People live in, in, in Queens and Brooklyn. And, you know, not everyone lives in LA. There's a lot of traffic. And so you think about, okay, well, how do you fix that congestion? And so you build bridges and you build different mediums of transportation. And I think the internet also had this problem. Like initially, like stitching together the internet. And, and I really want to bring someone that can talk about this. Because Vitalik had a good thread about bridges um, that we should at some point discuss um, as far as the scope of this episode. But it's sort of like, I think more discussion should be on, okay, P 
people are critical of like some of these rollups. You're breaking composability. You're breaking this atomicity that you know, fun, like smart contracts execute, and like when you go to an L2, and like how does an L2 talk to another L2? Um, how does an L1 talk to another L1? And how do you build these bridges? And 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 do you break the security? Does that create like a very like problematic, like you're only as strong as your weakest link. I'm saying these things because these are the kind of discussions that one needs to have. I think the analogy to urban development and the way cities have kind of been constructed is is useful because it forces you to understand, okay, LA is great, but has a huge traffic problem. Um, New York is very focused on a particular finance. And, and so, okay, like how do you connect these cities? And, and so I think, look, and we're going to jump here, but in the episode with Kyle, and time and time again, people use analogies to understand interesting new concepts. They're not perfect, though, right? You could argue that sometimes by trying to overfit a model, you kind of lose. You kind of lose this idea that like sometimes things don't need a map to history, don't need a map to a particular prior technological revolution to use Carlota Perez concept, like. Sometimes you just need to kind of like be comfortable with understanding that shit's not going to fit in your mental model and you just need to come up with a new one. Crypto has a lot of that. I'm not like, I don't know how you feel about this, but like, you know what I mean? Like I, f- I felt like my, my example to all of this is when, when I was investing in DeFi very early on, you know, the, I, and I came from world, I came from finance, but I'd also like, I'd studied game theory and benefited from just investing in open source. And that kind of helped me to break some of my mental models of traditional finance because you would have missed an AMM, right? Sam right. is very critical of AMM. She's like, why would you use AMM? Okay. When you can just like a, a central limit, like a limit or like a, what is it? Order book model? Like, it's just going to be infinite. You're, an AMM cannot compete against a, an order book model. I get that. But what you don't appreciate is, wait a minute, anyone now can be a market maker. And maybe, maybe there's a subset of users here that actually don't mind this impermanent loss concept that we talk about. And maybe it's, I can supply ETH and stables. Why? Because if I think there's a, because you're playing the market, right? There are times where I LP because I think I'm just going to cost average my way down. If I think ETH is going to 2000, what am I going to do right now? There's two things. One, I'm going to maybe try to TikTok this market and time it. And if ETH hits 2000 and 25 and 1500, I'm going to buy but I need to like have stables right now. Okay, fine. Kind of cumbersome. What if I just say, wait, wait a minute, I'm going to LP across this range in Uni V3 or Sushi or some AMM. And what is it going to do? It's going to constantly rebalance 50-50 ratio or whatever ratio, right? Or balancer, you can fit, fix the ratio. And what is that going to do? That's going to keep that. And you're going to sell as ETH, as ETH continues to decline. You're going to constantly be selling USDC and be, uh, implicitly buying more ETH, cost everything your way down, right? While in the meantime, earning trading fees and maybe some sort of incentive. I think there's a subset of users, maybe protocols and treasuries that really like that idea. And that's something that, you know, by using analogies, for instance, by, by being really fixated on your mental model of like coming from traditional finance and how Wall Street operates today, you would have missed that trade. You would have not invested in Uniswap yep. and so you drowned. You would have been super critical of that. And that's, I think, something that is we need to kind of remind ourselves that sometimes sometimes the best investments really kind of require a mental flex and saying, Hey, maybe, maybe things are not going to map out because they shouldn't. Right. Cause if they're going to map one one to a prior kind of system or world, then what's the whole point of innovating? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that analogies 
So you, you brought up Kyle, right? You brought up our episode with Kyle and Tushar. Here's what Kyle said about the city's thing, right? Analogies to the past are almost always wrong. And I agree with him here. Though I love to, I love to try to make them. I think history doesn't repeat. It rhymes only if you're lucky. Analogies imply far more precision in mapping different concepts across time than is almost possible to be accurate, right? And digital to digital analogies are sometimes you can get them right. Sometimes they're wrong. Analog to digital ones are usually wrong, right? And so cities specifically, this is what Kyle says, cities specifically are bad analogies because blockchains don't compete for users, but for developers, right? Whereas uh, cities really compete for users, the people, uh, blockchains are really competing for the devs, right? Uh, and I think users, what he would, what Kyle would say here is users don't actually care about the chain, but they do care about the city that they live in. In blockchains, developers drive users to chains. In cities, developers follow the people. And so I think that's his take. Do you think, do you think this sort of like urban analogy is accurate? Um, I mean, there's, it's not perfect one-on-one, but I find it generally constructive, useful. Yeah, I disagree with Kyle and agree with Hasib. Actually, the first okay. guy who ever told me this analogy was um, uh, one of the founders of Polygon, founders of Matic. Uh, he used it. And he, he laid, he, I, I, I really like it, actually. I think, um, I think users end up just basically becoming, I think people really underestimate just the cultural side of, uh, and like cult, like the cult side of things. And yeah, like, the, and people have always done that throughout tech. Like some people are just Microsoft people and some people are just, you know, Apple people and some people are just Android people and some people are just iPhone people. And that's just like almost a part of your personality. And I think that it will become that way with this kind of stuff. Like you see all these people on Twitter with like the little red, red pyramids. They're, they're like avalanche people. And like, that's what yeah. they're going to be. And you've got some people who just like absolutely love ETH, right? Big shout out to, you know, our friends at Bankless, uh, really good friends. They, they just love ETH, right? They, they really, really, really love ETH. And like, I don't humans are tribal species. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think, um, I think the analogy is a, the city analogy is a good one. Uh, and most people stay in the same city most of their life, but some people end up moving, right? They live in a city for a little bit and they're like, Oh wait, actually I hate San Francisco. I'm going to move down to Austin because it looks better and they try it. And sometimes they stay and sometimes they go back. All right. Should we go to the, I mean, this was a good overall discussion. I'd be curious, uh, to now move to the news. Okay. Where to start? Uh, this week, Gemini acquired crypto trading tech platform Omniax. The buy allows the company to publicly launch a crypto prime brokerage offering. Uh, I thought mm -hmm. this was a pretty interesting acquisition one week after Coinbase acquired that derivatives platform. Uh, Gemini, this is also one week after they acquired uh, Bitria, which is a digital asset portfolio management platform. I think what you're seeing here is consolidation. Uh, what you're seeing here is consolidation. Basically, at a whole bunch of companies, the narrative in 2017, 2018, 2019 was we need to create inf institutional infrastructure. It sounds boring as hell right now, but in 2018 and 2019, you know what people are excited about? Prime brokerage and custody. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, snooze fest. But that's what people were excited about. And so everyone went and launched all these new uh, startups. Like there's all these new DeFi platforms today. There were all these new custodians and prime brokers popping up and trading pla platforms. But if you don't get, uh, if you are not one of the top players there, you, you kind of just fade into oblivion. And so I think a lot of those folks who have like 10 to 20 employees, they're all going to get scooped up now by FTX, Coinbase, Gemini, oh, yeah. Kraken, you know, Bitstamp, uh, Binance, you name it. 
because, and there'll just be mass consolidation in the exchange space. So that's what I think yep. you're seeing here. By the way, this, 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 this feeds into, I think as we more, we are starting to see an uptick in, in this kind of financial infrastructure kind of acquisitions FTX did one last year, more and more. So this is just sort of like, it's interesting because you, I would have thought for a long time Fidelity would like be now like offering like a robust product for some of the larger kind of like financial institutions and interacting brokers, all this stuff. They're not, but it loves, it, it is, it is encouraging for DeFi, right? <clears throat> because I think like the, the number one constraint is how do you deal with custody and all this stuff and, and, and really kind of best in class financial tools, which do not exist. I'm investing in a new company right. now, which is kind of trying to build a better fireblocks, a better curve. And I'm super excited, super smart guys from like Israel. And I think like, like the cyber intelligence unit, which has produced some of the best founders. Like we just need more of that. We it's, it's kind of crazy, but like to me, it's sort of like you look at the market cap of Coinbase. Coinbase doesn't have really good customer Amazon like customer support. It has high fees. Um, it's actually not a very good product as much as I like them. I think it's not like in traditional finance. Let's just put it this way. Coinbase probably wouldn't have been like really kind of successful, but you know, it's synonymous of buying crypto. They've done a belt bit great franchise. They have a lot of, you know, kudos to them. I don't think they've ever been hacked. Like, great. But still, yeah. there's a lot to be desired in the kind of service that you're used to coming from traditional finance is what I'm trying to say. I'm not, I'm yeah. not trying to like be critical here, but I'm just being realistic. I think like it doesn't live up to expectations. Yeah. I mean, Co Coinbase tried to fix. So Coinbase and Gemini compete all the time for their custody solution. Coinbase did a nice move when they acquired Tagomi for their prime uh -huh. brokerage platform. And this is kind of Gemini saying, okay, let's go ahead continue to go head to head with you launch our crypto prime brokering offering gemini prime uh and, and just bolster that out so good acquisition by gemini in my mind uh next one is OpenSea. OpenSea acquired uh crypto lending dharma labs i don't think of them really as a... big congrats to uh nadav uh who's dharma ceo he's going to be joining OpenSea as their cto uh i guess my thought here is just like I think everyone is actually underestimating OpenSea. I've been saying for the last couple episodes, like OpenSea is going to face mass competition in the NFT space. I think that ev I think that OpenSea will be a hundred billion dollar company before we know it, uh, and that like everyone is underestimating what OpenSea is about to do this year. And I think that they are. I think this is the first of many acquisitions. They just secured, you know, their 300 million in Series C funding earlier this year. Their post-money valuation is 13.3 billion. They've got a million and a quarter, uh, 1.25 million active users, 2 million collections, over 80 million NFTs on the platform. OpenSea is going to make multiple acquisitions this year, I would think, and build the, the go-to, like crypto, uh, like DeFi native, platform in mm -hmm. in uh in the space and i think that they're doing yeah. that with this dharma acquisition it could just become an, a competitor more and more so to coinbase and be a public company absolutely yeah. absolutely i got a prediction right i got one of my one of my early predictions right bitmax executives plan to acquire one of germany's oldest banks um man i love i love bitmax making a comeback baby uh mm -hmm. Uh, BitMEX CEO Alexander Hopner and CFO Stefan Lutz uh, announced plans on Tuesday to acquire German bank Bankhaus von der Heidt. Uh, they are a 268-year-old bank. Uh, it is the first step, as they say, towards creating a one-stop shop for regulated crypto products across Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. I think this is an awesome move. They are buying their way into regulatory approvals and it is smart and other crypto companies should do the same thing yeah. well congrats on you beat me to the punch <laughs> that's what it's all about uh all right so 
this kind of like went under the radar this week, I feel like, but there's some massive permanent capital as I'm going to start calling it instead of venture capital coming into crypto. FTX launched a $2 billion venture fund. Shout out Amy Wu from Lightspeed Ventures is now going to lead the team of eight people. Amy's coming on the podcast the second week of February. Really excited to chat with her. Yeah, um, great. yeah they, you know, I, their, their thesis is very focused on gaming, very focused yeah. on, uh, just really, really focused on gaming, right? It's a, yeah, Amy. Amy's pretty sharp, and I've I've co-invested with with her a lot. She's very thoughtful. Uh, I'm excited to have her on the pod. And yeah, I mean, I think like uh, Star Atlas, and there's there's a lot of projects building on on top of Solana, and and you know, FTX is like obviously like through CRM has a big vested interest in Solana. So it's good to see that. I mean, it's, it's a lot of capital. Yeah. I've heard rumblings of A16Z raising, kind of like a four billion dollar fund, two billion for early stage, two billion for late stage. All crypto. All crypto fund? Oh, all crypto. Another crypto fund. Four, four and change billion. I probably wouldn't be surprised if it closed at five. Wow. But you know, it's 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 a lot of a lot of capital. I wonder how that gets deployed. But but you know, um, <clears throat> interesting. That's permanent capital. That's ten year. You know, closed end fund, give or take five, six years of investing the ladder for harvesting. And so, yeah, super encouraging, right? Those some real dollars. You know what else is real dollars? Crypto.com just bolstered their venture arm, uh, increasing it from $200 million to $500 million venture arm. I mean, this puts them kind of on equal footing with what like Binance and Coinbase started with their venture arms. And uh, so, I mean, this is nuts. Like Coinbase Ventures is now the most active uh, venture capital firm in the entire space. FTX launched $2 billion. Binance is a big venture arm. Crypto.com, $500 million venture arm now. Um Pretty interesting to see these exchanges. Honestly, just crypto crypto companies in general are getting into venture investing. Like usually when you think of like corporate venture, it's like Comcast Ventures or like Morgan Stanley's venture arm. It's these like big Fortune 500s. And with crypto, these companies are three years after launching, launching massive half billion dollar, billion dollar venture arms. And I saw Alchemy, uh, which, you know, fairly new company. Alchemy just launched their venture arm too. Like that is a very new company. So mm-hmm. Blockworks Venture, man. You want to, you want to, uh, you want to run it? <laughs> uh, maybe I'll launch a fund. I don't know. I'm pretty comfortable just not managing a fund to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to do a, one day we'll do, actually we're talking with Ben tomorrow. So we'll, we'll talk to him about what it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to ask Ben. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the other one, I know you're really good friends with these guys, so I don't know how much you can share, but Brevin Howard, uh, Blockworks got the big scoop. Brevin Howard launched his first digital assets fund in a massive crypto push. Uh, BH Digital, the asset manager's crypto division, has 25 employees. They'll have mm-hmm. 10 different teams of PMs. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, this, this is a massive, massive deal. Brevin Howard is one of the best funds of all time. They have, I think, $18 billion under management as of November of last year. So probably pushing close to like $20 billion AUM. They're one of the best allocators of all time. And they are now pushing into crypto also. Colleen Sullivan, like truly one of the best human beings in all of crypto and just one of my personal favorite human beings is, I think, leading this or, or, or is one of the main people on, she, on this she, team. She, yeah. Yeah. So. No, look, I, I've had the good fortune of knowing Alan uh, Howard uh, and his team. Uh, I'm actually going to go uh, next week and meet with them. Um, I'm, I'm just close with them. I, I, I co-invest a lot with them. Um, I love their I, – I, I get very excited seeing someone like that go 
so hard and make a, such a hard run into into crypto. Like, you know, you talk about some of the, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm relatively young in my investing career. Um, and when you see folks like Stan Miller or like Paul Tudor Jones, Brevin Howard, Paul Tudor Jones sort of like stopped a Bitcoin. I don't know if he's been venturing into more stuff, but I think Alan, I'd love to have him on the pod. I've asked him this before and he was like, oh, no, I don't really do kind of much media, but maybe this, if he hears this, then I'd love to have you, Alan, on the pod. Um, but it's, it's, it's actually like, it's very encouraging because it's not just, this is going to be, it's, this is not, let's just put it, let's just say this way. This is not going to be a 5% allocation of his, of the fund in a crypto. It is, uh, it is sort of like balls to the wall. Yeah. And, and one of the most encouraging stuff that I, I, I it really like fires me up, right? Because at Parify, for instance, one of our backers, and this is public stuff, is Henry Kravis, uh, who started KKR, probably invented private equity as we know it, an entire asset class. He's not very tech savvy, but I'll tell you what was super encouraging to hear was him believing that this is going to be as big or it is going to be an asset class. The same with the real estate is an asset class. The same with the private equity venture is an asset class. And when you hear from someone like that, it's just like, it's just awesome. Um, and it gave me, I looked back and went back to those moments and said, wow, like, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty great to, to see that. And I, I think a lot of people don't kind of benefit from that perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to share that anecdote because, yeah, like, things are different. Um, this is permanent capital. These are one of the smartest people that have a high opportunity cost. And we keep going back human capital. It's not just developers. It's not just like people from all walks of industries and even the most celebrated successful investors of all time, like triple point two, like Dan Lowe, they're moving into the space again. Yeah. Best returning tier one venture funds, MVCA data from last year was like 2.2 X. You know what the best returning crypto funds delivered over the last two, three years. I'll tell you what. If you deliver 2x, you meaningfully underperformed and you're out of business. Fired. You're fired. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> will will Brevin Howard be I mean cuz they're they're a trading firm, right? They're like a, they're a hedge fund. Will they be will it be primarily venture? Will it be primarily trading? No, I I think you're going to see a, a full like com- conglomerate of a holding company of sorts like Berkshire Hathaway in in crypto as I understand it. It's it's venture, it's liquid, it's like tr- all the a lot of stuff, even infrastructure, actually, Nuts. like staking and all Nuts. this stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's actually a very... Last but not least, $140 billion asset management firm, Man Group, considers launching a crypto fund. Uh, their CEO, Luke Ellis, says he sees interesting opportunities to provide a risk-managed version of crypto for their clients. I will be honest with you, I'd never heard of Man Group in my life, but $140 billion is... 10 times bigger than Brevin Howard's firm. I don't know how I've never heard of a $140 billion firm before. Uh, who are these guys? And uh, yeah, yeah. honestly, my main question is just why don't I know who Man Group is? Should I? Man Group is one of the largest hedge funds. I think if not the largest hedge fund in the UK. That's just uh, bad on me. Yeah. No, it's crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alan, Alan, I think Brevin Howard at one point had like 40 or something billion. Uh, but man is massive. I mean, it's huge, huge. All right, moving on. Uh, ending on a bad note there. Funding Tom Brady's Autograph NFT platform raises $170 million from Andreessen. Tom Brady, love that. Should have known it was coming when he put those laser eyes on. Uh, yeah. $170 million from Andreessen, The Weeknd, uh, Tom Brady, uh, Simone Biles uh, are all attached to it. Uh, big shout out to Ariana Simpson, who I think is joining their board. 
This is like the vitamin water kind of like deal of crypto, right? You got like Rihanna and all the, or George Clooney doing his tequila. This is kind of what we're seeing in the NFT space. Like people latch on their, like slap on their like brand. And look, I, I'm Tom Brady. You know, hats off. One of the best athletes out there. You know, more yeah. visibility to crypto, more users. I, I, I love it. You know, good, yeah. good for him. Yeah. I mean, they've released NFTs from like Tom, uh, Tony Hawk, Naomi Osaka, Wayne Gretzky, Derek Jeter, Usain Bolt, Rob Gronkowski. I mean, I think like, I think this is something that crypto folks will underestimate. But if you look back at uh, NBA Top Shot, like the crypto community actually did not love Top Shot because it felt very centralized. It felt very like you buy, you buy things with like a credit card, uh, not with, you know, your MetaMask wallet. But non-crypto folks are really excited about this. I've gotten several texts about Tom Brady's NFT platform. Yep. Uh, I'm going to cruise through a couple of these and end with the one I have the biggest question on. Sandbox's parent company, Animoca Brands, uh, raised $359 billion, I think at a $5 billion valuation, to continue building the metaverse. So now you've got uh, Meta versus Microsoft versus Animoca. Um, we're going to bring the Animoca brand CEO on the podcast soon. Really excited about that one. Also, IRA platform iTrust Capital raised $125 million to expand Bitcoin retirement options. I'm cruising through those because I have the biggest question about Secret Network, which announced mm -hmm. a $400 million ecosystem funding. I have never heard of System Network in my life. Should I have heard of them? Um, this is, I feel like they were called by a different name before, um, but I know the founder quite well. I, I got to be honest. I don't know these guys. Well, maybe we should get them on the pod. <laughs> Let's get them on the pod. All right. Yeah. I mean... It's a lot of money, right? $175 million accelerator pool and a $225 million ecosystem fund. Mm -hmm. Some real yeah, real investors uh, too. Yeah, no, it, it's someone. I, I played around with this for, for a bit and, and spoke with one of the founders. We'll get them on. And, and, and I think it's worth having this discussion. Obviously, privacy is front and center and there's not a lot yeah. of privacy in a lot of this stuff. So the only privacy is, by default smart <clears throat> contract blockchain. Uh, what, what would that enable? Like... Yeah, there's all kinds of use cases, but like a lot of a lot of the privacy solutions today are like building on top of DeFi and like trying to like, uh, but it's it's kind of hard to construct. Like this would be like a Monero, but like Monero is closer to Bitcoin, and so this would be just yeah. like a privacy focus, like Ethereum, sort of like smart yeah. contract platform. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna uh, wrap it up with one one last thing. Facebook and Instagram are allowing users to create, display, and sell NFTs. They're thinking about an NFT marketplace as well. This comes weeks after Twitter said that they were going to integrate with NFTs to verify your NFTs. Web 2, it is not Web 2 versus Web 3. I am convinced that in the, at least in the short term, it is not Web 2 versus Web 3. It is that Web 2 will be the greatest distribution funnel for Web 3. They will work together. Web 2 is the distribution funnel for Web 3. Shopify also launching the ability to mint and sell your own branded NFTs. These... Folks, Web 2, Web 3, they're working together. It is not one versus the other. I agree. That's very well said. Um, yeah. we, you know, it's not, we're not going to blow up Web 2. Web 2 is just a massive funnel for Web 3. Yeah. One, uh, one thing to, that, that Mike, I went on a nice little hike with Mike yesterday. One thing we were talking about is that Web 2, nobody knows how to build products like Web 2 folks. Right At a certain point, the Web 3 people, we're going to have to figure out what, what we actually do with these tokens. You know? I would say that a product of Web 3 might be different than what you think of a best-in-class product in Web 2, to be fair. That's a good point. It's a good point. I think Web two is going to try to build these like very skeuomorphic products in Web three, right? Like, or you know, at least when the web this is this is this is SAT word of the day. So, uh, can, can, can you please link here to skeuomorphic, please? It's basically just a term that's that describes like 
I mean, I think it was actually talking about old interfaces used to describe interface objects that kind of mimic their real world counterpoints or counterparts, right? Like the, the, the calculator on the iPhone, how it looks exactly like a calculator in real life. Um, but I think, I mean, in, in crypto, like the, the way that I'm using the term here is, you know, I think a lot of folks are going to end up building skeuomorphic products. And what that means is that they'll build products that try to look like and resemble web two things. So it's like, let's go build Uber on crypto rails. Let's go build Facebook or Instagram on crypto rails. But really what they should think about is how these new rails enable new things that don't actually look like web two stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I know. Look, I mean, I think like. I keep saying this again, this is any, anyone that believes it's a winner take all chain. Um, and as a lot of what has happened in DeFi, a lot of what has happened today, a lot of the building has been constructing primitives that exist in the real world and in, 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 in old systems and that's fine. But, um, but I think, um, the more important here is a lot of the different use cases that are enabled by this technology. And I think we, we haven't really seen a lot of that innovation, but it will come. It will come. Yep. I'm just excited. All right. All right, Santi. I've now, we've run, runneth over, I would say. We are going to start the next episode, not with narratives and not with news, but something that I want to get your take on, which is how do you size your angel investment bets, right? How do you size that? So I will leave you with that for the next week. How do you size your bets in crypto? I'm starting to realize it is the most important thing. So if you want to hear that, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on Apple, Spotify, whatever else you listen on, hit the subscribe button so you can get that episode. We've got some really good apps coming soon. And as always, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, my friend. It's great. Great to be here. Thanks everyone for listening and looking forward to doing this next week. Cool. See you guys. All right. Take care.